And what do we believe about this time in God's house that is so important? And then I was also watching the news and looking at what some of our brothers and sisters around the country are dealing with, floods and, and fire, and, and uh, we're fortunate not to be dealing with those things. We have a beautiful morning uh, here in, in, at Redeemer to uh, just come and be part of this. Um, we believe in God's power. We believe that God's power can change us. That's one of the reasons we come. Uh, we believe that his creating power has the ability to make relationships in our life uh, different. And we believe in God's redeeming power uh, that saves us uh, from discouragement and despair. Uh, we believe in God's sustaining power that gives us strength and courage to face each and every day. So these are all part of the, the reasons why I think we get together and to sing, to pray, to listen, uh, because we tap into the seismic power of God's kingdom. So I hope that that power today will change your life as you are here uh, to share in worship as you sing and enjoy uh, the moments in God's presence. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we invite you to uh, hear us as we approach you in prayer today as we ask for your blessing upon this time together in worship. Uh, we ask for the blessing of peace and calm uh, that we might not be distracted by other things that draw our attention away from you. Uh, we ask for the blessing of faith, faith to believe that you do speak to us and feed us and nurture us through the word, and by that, um, by that word you, we come to know you better. And we ask for the blessing of clarity as your spirit takes our music and our words and interprets them to our hearts in ways that go beyond mere understanding. So, Father, we ask for all these things. We ask for blessings in this moment, and uh, we do that so that you might receive the honor that is rightly yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're in the final weeks of um, uh, this teaching series we've been doing for the summer called Dare to Dream, and uh, we've been looking at the life story of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Today we're in Genesis chapter 21. We're at the end of the chapter, beginning with verse 22, and uh, we're going to discover a story about King Abimelech and Abraham, and then five steps related to making peace and living in peace with our enemies. Now, that might not sound like much at first but uh, that we'd be interested in, but in, uh, believe me, in all the issues uh, in our life, uh, we, have, we all have issues in our life, either with a spouse or a parent, a neighbor, a relative, a coach, an employer, a teacher. Most of us have been mistreated at some point in our life, and a lot of us have been left with a wounded spirit. But whatever we have experienced in life, whatever the pain, whatever the hurt, we don't have to live there. And there is hope, and there is healing available through our faith in Jesus Christ. So whatever uh, brought you here today, uh, we're certainly glad that you came. We want you uh, to know that we are very glad that you're here. And my prayer is that you will be blessed for being here. And something in the music or the message today will touch your heart and meet you at your point of need. Former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin once said, You don't make peace with your friends, only with your enemies. He said those words soon after Israel signed a historic peace treaty with the PLO in 1993, harshly criticized by many of his countrymen who felt he'd given up too much in his quest for peace. He defended himself against those who asked, how could he sit at the same table with a man like Yasser Arafat? 
And so the statement, you don't make peace with your friends, only with your enemies. Within two years, he would pay with his life for his commitment to peace. Whatever else we may say about Mr. Rabin, we must acknowledge the truth of his words. Peacemaking is a risky and difficult business. It's much easier to start a war than it is to end one. Recently, I ran across some startling statistics. In the last 3,500 years or so, some 8,000 peace treaties meant to last forever have been signed, and the average time they remained in force was only two years. In that same period of time, there have been uh, only about 286 years in which the world has been relatively at peace. It's a ratio of about 8% peace and about 92% strife. Since 1919, the nations of Europe have signed over 200 peace treaties, nearly all of which were broken more easily than they were enforced. John Foster Dulles pinpointed the problem in his words, the world, the world will never have lasting peace so long as people reserve for war the finest human qualities. Peace, no less than war, requires idealism and self-sacrifice and a righteous and dynamic faith. And he's certainly right in his analysis. Peace never just happens. Someone has to go out of their way to make peace. That's why uh, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, God blesses those who work for peace. Not the peace wishers or the peace hopers, but peacemakers. In a world torn by strife and fueled by hatred, we need Christ's followers who will step up and be true peacemakers. In our text this morning from the Old Testament book of Genesis describes one instance in which two men made peace with one another. On one hand, we have Abimelech, the king of Gerar. On the other is Abraham, the man of faith. And these two men have faced off before, if you remember, when Abraham lied about his wife in order to save his own skin back in Genesis 20. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. But God intervened and protected Sarah and allowed Abraham to be publicly humiliated for his deception. In the process, the pagan king, Abimelech, becomes profoundly convinced that God is on Abraham's side. And it would be to his best interest to make a peace treaty with Abraham. And with that background, I would invite you to hear the text uh, as we get into it this morning. About this time, Abimelech came with Phicol, his army commander, to visit Abraham. God is obviously with you, helping you in everything you do, Abimelech said. Swear to me in God's name that you will never deceive me or my children or any of my descendants. And this, by the way, was a reasonable request since Abraham had already deceived him once before. Verse 24, I've, I have been loyal to you, so now swear that you will be loyal to me and to this country where you are living as a foreigner. Here he appeals to Abraham's sense of fairness. It's the golden rule, only this time it's the pagan who appeals to this noble principle. Abraham replied, yes, I swear to it. And so, verbally, they have a peace treaty, a formal peace treaty. 
But this is not the end of the story. As we all know, making peace requires much more than signing a piece of paper. It means that both sides must approach the other in good faith, attempting to resolve problems before they get out of hand. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, this is the first I've heard of it. I have no idea who's responsible. You've never complained about this before. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. And this represented the practical application of the verbal agreement that they had already reached. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, he said, why have you set these seven apart from the others? And Abraham replied, please accept these seven lambs to show your agreement that I dug this well. So the place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. Beersheba means well of seven or well of the oath, and the city still exists by that name today. The last few verses of chapter 22 tell of the positive results of this peace treaty. Abimelech and his men returned home, verse 32. Uh, Abraham lived in, uh, worshiped God in Beersheba, uh, verse 33. And then Abraham lives in peace there for a very long time, says verse 34. So it's possible to make peace with our enemies, but it's not easy, and it won't happen overnight. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a pledge for those working with him in the civil rights struggle of the 1960s. Every single volunteer was required to sign this pledge. Here's what his followers agreed to. Meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus. Remember always that this movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Walk and talk in the way of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God so that all people might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. And refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Those principles strike me as wise and realistic, and wouldn't the world be a better place if we all lived by that today? In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, there's an interesting phrase. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Philistia have acted against Judah out of bitter revenge and long-standing contempt. We've all heard of the famous Hatfields and McCoys, and their feud that lasted for generations. Nothing new. Many of the conflicts in the world today go back centuries. Think about Northern Ireland. Think about Bosnia. Think about tribal warfare in Africa. Not long ago, I read that one of the reasons the Arabs are so resistant to Christianity today is to them the Crusades might have just happened yesterday, and it was really 700 years ago but they remember it like it was yesterday. Perhaps nothing causes as much pain for all of us as a broken promise. How many fights have started? How many marriages have ended because someone broke a promise? To break a promise means going back on our word. We live in a world of broken promises, don't we? Where men and women routinely make promises 
they know they will probably break tomorrow. We get married with the full knowledge that if it doesn't work out, we can always get a divorce. We volunteer for a ministry at church knowing that we can always quit in the middle of the year if things get too hectic for us. We flash a credit card at the checkout when we already know that we're over the limit. We say, I'll call you soon when we have no intention of calling at all. We say, I'll be glad to help you even while we're thinking of a way to get out of it. A wise man once said the key to happiness is to make fewer promises but to keep the ones that we do make. And all of us would be happier if we followed that simple rule. Taking up an offense happens when we get angry because of how someone we love has been mistreated. So husbands get angry on behalf of their wives, wives on behalf of their husbands, friends uh, for friends, and relatives for relatives, and workers for workers, and students for students, and on it goes. And the danger here is that we let our anger get the best of us, and we go off saying and doing things that we later regret. Solomon warned us about this in Proverbs 18, 14. He said, the human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear a crushed spirit? We don't get a wounded or a crushed spirit overnight. It happens gradually over time as one hurt after another is piled on each other. And slowly our heart begins to harden. Our attitude begins to change as joy is squeezed out of our life. Over the years, I've observed one primary sign of a wounded spirit. When our spirit is wounded, we become angry, and we become bitter, and we wallow in self-pity, and we'd rather stay that way than get better. In fact, we attack anyone who dares to try and help us. And it's been my observation that people with a wounded spirit are almost impossible to help. These are individuals who have become so settled in their personal hurt that no words of counsel seem to reach them. And that's why Solomon asks, who can bear a crushed spirit? And the answer is no one. Now from this small and often overlooked story tucked away in Genesis, we can find uh, five steps that will lead us on a path to peace. And the first one on this path to peace is humility. Someone, asked, uh, ha someone has to take the first step in the path to peace. In our text today, Abimelech, the pagan king, is the one to make the first move. Think about the strained relationships in your own life. Someone has to make the first move. Will you be the one to pick up the phone? Will you be the one to write a letter? Will you be the one to stop making excuses? Will you be the one to make the first move to make that relationship right? See, Jesus made the first move when he humbled himself by leaving heaven to be born as a tiny baby here on earth. And he showed us what it means to take the initiative to heal a broken relationship. And as long as we sit where we are, things will never change, but we say, you know what? It's not my fault. Maybe it's not. But Jesus said, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Someone has to make the first move. Why not you? Let me put it this way. Is there someone in your life that you really don't want to be around? You don't really want to see anymore. 
that might be the first person that you need to talk to. So the first step on the path to peace is always humility. The second step on the path to peace is courage. Peacemaking takes courage because we never know how the person is going to respond. There are no guarantees. Sometimes our best efforts are going to be rejected. In this case, Abimelech didn't know how Abraham would respond. If he got angry, it might lead to war. The same is true for us. If we make that phone call, if we go to see our boss, if we write a letter to our parent, you know, we're taking a big chance. The other person might not understand. They might interpret it as a sign of weakness. They might even try to twist our motives. Peacemaking is always a risky business. That's why so few people do it and why so often it fails. But if we have a broken relationship in our life, it's not going to get any better by, our, by itself. If we do nothing, it's only going to get worse. The third step on the path to peace is honesty. Peacemaking requires honesty. In our text, Abraham brought up the matter of the well. After they had signed the treaty, he brought up the matter of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized a well from his people. They made peace, and immediately it seems like Abraham starts complaining. But he's perfectly justified because if he lets this issue fester, pretty soon the whole peace treaty is going to go up in smoke. So he has to mention it, even though it might have been easier to overlook it. That reminds me that so many of us shy away from open confrontation, don't we? We'd rather just look the other way when problems come. But I learned a long time ago that the first price we pay is always the cheapest. When we don't deal with relational problems when they arise, the price for solving those problems always goes up the longer we wait. It never goes down. And that's why Proverbs 24, 26 says, an honest answer is like a kiss of friendship. The truth may hurt, but it's always more satisfying in the end. Without honesty in all of our relationships, peace is impossible. So the fourth step on the path to peace is patience. Peacemaking requires patience because people's attitudes don't change overnight. We can't overcome years of hostility and mistrust over a quick lunch at Denny's. In, in this case, Abimelech and Abraham had to learn to live together, despite their differences of background and religion. Would you like a definition of patience? Here's one that works for me. Patience is the willingness to wait for God to solve our problems. So many times we get frustrated with other people because they aren't changing fast enough to suit us. Parents get angry at their children, husbands at their wives, wives at their husbands, adult children get frustrated with their parents, workers with their bosses, bosses with their employees, students with their teachers, friends with friends, relatives with relatives, church members get frustrated all the time as well. We throw up our hands and we say, what's wrong with those people? That's the wrong question because it focuses all the attention on others when we really ought to be throwing the spotlight on our own impatience. What we ought to be asking is, am I willing to wait for God to solve the problem? Proverbs 21.1 reminds us that the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. If that's true, if we've committed the people who frustrate us to God, then we can simply sit back and wait for God to do his work. Because sooner or later, even the hardest heart must bend to the, God, to the will of God. Now here's the final, fifth, uh, 
step in the path to peace, and it's kindness. The final aspect of peacemaking is kindness. We see a glimpse of that when Abimelech reminds Abraham of the kindness that he's already shown to him. And we see a much greater glimpse in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 4, Paul says, God's kindness is intended to turn us from our sin. In Ephesians 2, 7, the Apostle Paul says that God showed his kindness, his grace to us in Jesus Christ. In Titus 3, 4, it declares, God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, and he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I invite you to go with me for a moment to a place called Calvary to gaze on the disfigured body of Jesus of Nazareth. And I invite you to listen. Can you hear the howling mob as they scream for his blood, as they cheer for his pain, as they laugh at his suffering? Cheering and chanting and laughing and mocking, the mob enjoys every moment of this tragedy. A man dies and the world cheers. The Son of God offers himself in humility uh, and all of humanity is mocking his pain. But from the cross comes the words that have echoed across the ages, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And now we do know. If we never knew before, now we do know. We know that the price, we know the pain, we know the agony that Jesus went through. The Prince of Peace came to earth and was put to death. If you want to see, see the real face of love, I invite you to look at the cross. If you want to see what kindness is all about, gaze at the contorted face of our crucified Redeemer. Jesus said, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. First he said it, and then he showed us how to do it when he died on the cross. So this morning my question for you is, would you like to make peace? with anybody in your life? Is there a relationship? Is there an enemy? Is there a person in your life you need to make peace with? You can, but it won't be easy. If you would rather live in anger and bitterness, you can do that. That's an option that's always open to you. Or you can follow Jesus to the cross and let your pain die there. The choice is yours. Let's pray. God, sometimes our lives do feel like a battle zone. At other times, we're caught in this endless storm with our thoughts flying out of control. Confusion reigns, defeat creeps in and steals our joy. And we need your peace. We need that deep down kind of peace that stays with us day and night and speaks confidently to our spirits. So calm our anxious lives, Lord, and all that fills us today with needless worry. Help us to put our trust in you. We're asking you to take control. We're tired of the frenzy of life. We're tired of the busy schedules. We need more of you and less of us. Help us to focus on your goodness. Thank you today for every good gift that you've given us, every blessing that you've sent us, all the forgiveness that we do not deserve. And yes, for every trial that comes into our lives, you bring good out of every circumstance if we'll only let go and believe you. Today we crave your peace. Whether in trivial or heavier matters, we know that you will not only give us peace, Lord, you will be our peace. 
And when we draw close to you in prayer and reading your word and helping each other and taking our minds off of ourselves, you'll be there up close and personal. So God, speak peace into each of our lives today and calm the storms. Hold our hands while we walk through each difficult relationship, each difficult problem. Bring the reassuring wisdom of those who have come through similar times. Thank you, Lord, because we're trusting in you. And it's in the name of the one who makes even the wind and the waves stand still that we pray. Amen.